Welcome to the Saxophone History Podcast, a thoughtful, researched, and slightly irreverent look at the history of our instrument. I'm your host, Andrew D. Meyer. My guest today is Erica Durham. Erica and I met at Youngstown State University, where we both studied classical saxophone with Dr. James Umble, uh, and we played quartet together. Um, Erica lives in Cleveland, Ohio, and she's a small business consultant, amongst many other things. Hi, Erica. Hi, Andy. So uh, what do you know about Elise Hall? We're talking about Elise Hall today, I should say. Um, I know nothing to the point where when you asked me if I was interested in doing this, you said, what do you know about Elise Hall? And my first reaction was, is it a person that I know in regular life? Is it a person that I should know something about because of some other context? Or is it like a place? Is it a, like a performance hall? Like Elise <laughs> so, Hall National Park and Monument. Yeah, so, so that's how ignorant I am to this. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, that's really good. So I wanted to start this podcast by talking about Elise Hall um, because I wanted to choose someone who made a major impact on our repertoire and someone who lived pretty early on in the development of the saxophone, but also someone who we probably don't really know a whole lot about in terms of her life um, outside of the bullet points associated with her kind of contributions to the repertoire. Mm -hmm. I really... Uh, she wasn't on my radar at all, probably until my ped and rep class during my master's. Um, and even at that time, I, I think I probably memorized a couple of like factoids about her, um, maybe for my oral exams, but, but still really didn't have a good picture of who she was. So this was a great opportunity for me to just really take a deep dive into her life and, and flesh out a good bit more about um, who this really incredible person was and the development of our instrument. Do you uh, want to say what ped and rep is to anybody uh, who doesn't? Yeah, okay. So uh, pedagogy and repertoire, which is sort of, um, I guess, one of the last classes you take in your master's. Um, if you're thinking about going to teach the saxophone, it's, you know, pedagogy, like learning how to teach, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and I should say that this is in no way meant to be a complete study of her life, but uh, more of an opportunity just to go into some detail about her personal life, the commission she made, and the impact that she left on the saxophone and our repertoire. Cool. I'll post a full list of sources on my website, which is andrewdmeyer.com, uh, M-E-Y-E-R, along with an edited version of this script that I'm using in case anybody wants to just find some info quickly. Um, but there's sort of two main sources, which are really great reads. So I just want to acknowledge them before we get started, um, just because I, I really lean on them heavily. Dr. William Street wrote a really excellent dissertation on Elise called Elise Boyer Hall, America's first female concert saxophonist. Her life as performing artist, pioneer of concert repertory for saxophone and patroness of the arts. Uh, wow. Great <laughs> title. It's a real mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, it's it's. I found it exceedingly difficult to get your hands on unless you have access to a university library. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second and source, Doctor Street teaches where? He teaches at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, I believe. 
Which, interesting uh, geographical fact, Edmonton, Alberta is on the same line of latitude as Manchester, UK, where I live. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I think Manchester, Edmonton, and Juneau, Alaska are all on the same, like it, it seems crazy, but because of it the dominance of the world. Yeah. 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 Oh. I love so, that you know that. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, so the other article, um, James Noyes, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, who teaches at um, William Patterson, I believe. He wrote a great article, which really dives deep into um, her commissioning of Debussy, which is going to be mm -hmm. the focus of this. So these are going to be major sources, like I said. Um, there's a bunch of good articles in, in some professional journals, um, but again, not everybody has access to this. So other than that, on the internet, there's only really pretty surface level info. So I wanted this to be an opportunity to uh, bring some more of that detail maybe out into uh, the public a little bit. <clears throat> and I also just want to say that I'm interested in looking at, at how the life experiences and social background of someone like Elise Hall led her to the saxophone, which was probably a, a somewhat unlikely instrument for someone so interested in orchestral music at the time. Um, you know, she lived around the turn of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, and also I want to look at, you know, how does someone go from being a, an amateur player of like less than a decade to badgering Claude Debussy into writing a work for her? Yeah. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> Let's first go through a broad timeline of her life and learn a bit more about who she was before we get into the weeds with her commissions. Elise Hall, born Elizabeth Boyer Sweat Coolidge, was born to a wealthy family of merchants in 1853. Like many people of the 19th and earlier centuries, the exact date of her birth is somewhat unclear and no birth, birth certificate has been found for confirmation, but it's likely that she was born on April 15th, 1853. What is certain is that she was born in Paris. Interestingly, according to William Street, it appears that she altered official documents later in life to make her seem somewhat younger than she was. Uh, mm. And uncommon vanity, you know, that's uh, made her real age a little bit obscure. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna post a link in the chat um, to a picture of her. Okay. You see it? going to be an issue. <laughs> oh, here it is. Can can you maybe just describe what she looks like in this picture? If you can. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's got, wow. She's got this huge um, hat on. Yeah. It looks very puffy. It's a very tall hat. Um, she has this massive jacket with these amazing ruffles on the shoulders. She's holding an alto saxophone. She does have like a very round baby face and this uh, great like choker on with a some kind of pendant. Yeah, yeah. If you were if you were gonna play the saxophone, is that sort of an outfit that you might choose for yourself? <laughs> I would say this is high embellishment for something that. <laughs> <laughs> to play to play an instrument like that literally looks like her sleeve is going to swallow the horn into it <laughs> yeah it's definitely got elements of wizard about it yeah it, it looks like it would just be extremely difficult to breathe this is like definitely. like uh late victorian i guess uh like end of the uh, 19th century so 
I, I imagine there's probably some pretty intense like girdle or uh, course yes. kind of things going on. It, it's just seems shocking to me that someone could play dressed like that. Yeah, but she did. I just thought that was interesting. It is. Yeah. And um, so Elise was the first of three children born to Joseph Sweat Coolidge and Mary Louisa Coolidge. Her parents were second cousins, and their eldest daughter, Elise, was born during a lengthy uh, trip to France, as in like multiple years. You said her parents were second cousins? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So Mary Coolidge, Elise's mother, met her husband while she was rebounding from being jilted. Uh, and then when she, so she gets together with her second cousin, and she insists that he swap his middle and last names uh, to sort of obscure the fact that they're second cousins. Oh, uh, yeah, which is kind of, well, whatever. <laughs> I mean, no shame. If you're going to do it, just go for it. Yeah. I like that they went to the trouble of like swapping the names around, though, like uh -huh. keeping the same. It seems crazy. To me. Yeah. So Elise's father's occupation is usually listed as merchant, which seems innocuous enough. But as William Street points out, it's important to understand what a merchant was in the mid-19th century. The Boston Almanac and Business District uh, Directory of 1853 describes a merchant as, quote, principally ship owners and importers of cargo, unquote. So Joseph was not uh, like a, a simple shopkeeper or something like that, as we might think merchant. Like this was a really wealthy person. Uh, all of the prior generations of Joseph and Mary's families had tens of thousands of dollars to their name, which would make them millionaires many times over in today's money. Joseph's mother, uh, which would be Elise's paternal grandmother, uh, for example, had a personal estate estimated to be worth $87,000, which would be a little over $3.3 million in today's money. And though financial records are pretty scant, Street speculates that much of this money was allowed to pass from generation to generation, largely intact and tax-free through a series of trusts, uh, rich people okay. stuff, you know. Yes. They've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's been going on since the dawn of time. Uh -huh. um, if Coolidge sounds like a real blue-blooded New England name, that's because it is. The Coolidge family came to Massachusetts as colonists from Cambridgeshire in 1630. And the family produced several notable sons. Uh, one, Joseph Coolidge. There's a lot of men in this family named Joseph Coolidge. Uh, it's pretty, pretty frustrating to read about them because they all have the same <laughs> name. <laughs> so uh, one, Joseph Coolidge, actually participated in the Boston Tea Party. Uh, he was one of the guys that dressed up like a Mohawk Indian. Wow. Um, yeah. Like, so they've been in the country that long. <laughs> Uh, her great-granduncle was the architect Charles Bullfinch, who designed the Capitol buildings for Maine and Connecticut, and also finished okay. the National Capitol building in Washington, D.C. I think his, uh, he was specifically doing something with the uh, domes or the rotundos. Right. And this is just kind of a neat side note. Another relation of theirs, J.T. Coolidge, lived in the former residence of the colonial governor, Benning Wentworth, um, who is not a relation to them. But when he came over to America, he brought lilac bushes from England to, to plant around his, um, his governor's mansion. And it's believed that all other lilac bushes in America have descended from those ones that he brought over. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that house, that house was owned by the Coolidge family at, at some point. 
Um, I'm going into this detail about who her family was and what they accomplished, because I think it sheds light on how Elise would have seen the world and her role in it. Her ancestors were people who did big and important things. If they thought British taxation was unfair, they dumped tea in the harbor. They designed mm-hmm. and built capital buildings. You, you can see how this sort of mentality would give Elise the confidence to lead the Boston Orchestral Club and to approach world-renowned composers such as Claude Debussy. Right. It's like a larger than life thing. Like there's never been like a a thing in, in her view that it would prevent her from doing something that she wanted to do. Exactly. She's only yeah. ever seen people like steamrolling. Yeah. Her, her family just just if they want something to be a certain way, they just just make it be that way. Yeah. Which I feel like there's a part of that that I I'm curious about whether the story will go this way. But there was more time in the past than there is like more more recently to now where like people who wanted things to be different whether we agree with like the change or not it took a massive amount of effort of some sort whether it was like intellectual or physical to actually like see those things through mm-hmm. and it wasn't just like i want this to be different i'm going to complain about it until or like make someone else do something like the people in her family who had that kind of power they actually were also the people doing the things that they wanted to be different you know what i mean yeah, I suppose there were a lot less um, sort of methods of communication that, that you could leverage. Like you, right. you wouldn't be able to sort of quickly crowdfund uh, like support from a, a mass audience, like based on a, an idea or something. Yeah. You, you'd really have to sort of do it under your own ability or something maybe. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking about it in the context of Elise being a person who would as we have already opened up the topic of is going to become a performer of classical saxophone music. Yeah. Which is not something that you get to just like, be like, I think I'll do this today. And then suddenly you can do it. It's a thing that we both know takes like many, many years of like very specific study. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to do it now. And it certainly would have been difficult when there was no repertoire and no, you know, no sort of infrastructure that, that wasn't an established track in life that you could do. Right. Um, so she marries Dr. Richard J. Hall in Boston in 1879. And her husband, Dr. Hall, was the first American surgeon to successfully perform an appendectomy. Oh. Uh, yeah. So uh, they get married in 1879, and then 10 years later in 1889, uh, they moved to Santa Barbara, California, uh, and they have two daughters at this point. They immediately get involved in the community with the doctor taking on philanthropic roles while Elise created a musical group called The Amateurs. The Amateurs. (laughs) As far as I can tell, at this point, she's still not playing the saxophone, so it's a little bit unclear what role she's playing in this group, um, whether it's sort of an administrative capacity or, or whether she's somehow more directly involved with the music. She clearly just has this lifelong love and fascination with music. And uh, yeah, I think at this point, it's it's unknown how she's, how she's uh, expressing that. Is there any information on what that group was doing specifically? Like, were they an ensemble or were they just like, uh, did they perform or was it just like a club? I couldn't find any, any information or, or reviews or anything of what they're doing. Gotcha. Um, yeah. 
I, I think it's important to recognize, you know, just how different access to hearing music would have been during this time. Um, live performances would have been the only way to hear any kind of music, really. Um, Marconi's first radio transmissions weren't replicated in America until 1899, uh, which is sort of 10 years after where we are in time right now. Um, and Edison didn't invent the wax cylinder recording until 1908. So, you know, 20 years later, almost. So it's maybe also the case that there's a lot more people in general who have some ability to play an instrument. Yeah, possibly. I, I think I think why I'm bringing that up is is they move they move to the West Coast, they move to Santa Barbara, and I imagine that was probably like moving to the moon at the end of the 19th century. Like you're from Boston, that's where musical cultural life is going to be at the highest in America, right? Boston, maybe New York. Philadelphia and in Santa Barbara, California. I mean, this is only, you know, just 50 years on from the gold rush, right? From the 1840s, late 18th. Mm -hmm. So uh yeah. So I think they get out there and there's there's probably just like not enough music going on. And so they're like, well, uh, we gotta hear some music. So we gotta, we gotta put a band together or or whatever. Cool. Gotcha. And so that's the amateurs. Great. Uh, yeah. So in the in the mid 1890s, uh, which is shortly after they moved to California, Elise suffers some kind of illness, um, which isn't really described, probably because medicine at the end of the 19th century is just uh, not great. And so even though her husband's a doctor, for some reason, like whatever the illness is, it's just it's probably just not known. But it results in her uh, having some pretty substantial hearing loss. Uh, her husband recommends that she take up the saxophone to prevent further hearing loss. Whoa! Which, yeah. What? <laughs> so here we are. Now, now we're at the point where she starts playing the saxophone, and this seems so oh crazy. To me. I love that. Like someone's like playing play the saxophone as medical advice. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have like a, a pretty decent amount of hearing loss, which is probably due to like playing in bands and, and working on altissimo passages and small practice rooms, you know, with just right in front of the wall for years. It, it seems so crazy to me that someone would take up the saxophone to like prevent hearing loss. But mm -hmm. I guess that's just the state of medicine. I mean, also yeah. some other like common remedies uh, around the turn of the century uh, involved leeches, cocaine, radium huh? water, and mercury. So, and, that, and the so other thing, right? The other thing going on here is that her husband is performing appendectomies, and I'm pretty sure that uh, anesthetics were not existing either at that point. Yeah, I think that medicine was probably closer to like butchery at that stage. Yeah. There's uh, like. We're going to just employ six dudes to hold you down so we can get your appendix out. <laughs> and I think here's a prescription like for a, playing the saxophone. Yeah. Uh, also, here's some cocaine. Go and bend jazz. Yeah. <laughs> Done. <laughs> it worked. Podcast over. <laughs> so... After searching around the area for someone to teach her, uh, she connects with someone who plays the saxophone that Noyes describes simply as a laborer. Great. Uh, 
uh, it's fascinating to think of, of what these lessons would have involved. Uh, obviously, saxophone pedagogy wasn't even into its infancy yet. And who knows who this laborer saxophonist was. Yeah. I, I like to think that he was like some kind of uh, like stevedore or something or like longshoreman that just, you know. Yeah. That's kind of what I pictured. Yeah. I, I wish there was like more detail about who that person is because I bet they have a really wild story. Yeah. And so this is like, okay, so we're talking like it's about 1900 at this point when this is happening. Uh, yeah. So she gets sick in the, in the mid 1890s and, and starts playing the saxophone sometime, sometime in the mid 1890s. It doesn't, so say. I don't want to, I don't want to like blow up this whole thing, but obviously the saxophone has not been around for very long at that time, which means that like, it's almost kind of surprising that it's even in that part of the world in the first place. The saxophone was invented, uh, rather it was patented in 1846, I believe. Uh, and I think I think kind of the story of it is that, uh, um, you know, Adolf Sax gets it into the um, French military and the French military kind of takes it all over the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my understanding of it. Uh, you know, I've, I, maybe I'll do an episode on this someday, but there was this kind of famous, um, almost like musical battle where uh, I think it was whatever instruments the the French military was using, like assembled a band, like at this parade grounds. And then like Adolf Sachs had his like instruments in a band and they like had like a band battle. And huh. like, his, I think his instruments won. And like, I think that's kind of how they got. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty incredible. Detail in that, that I'm leaving out, but uh, that might no, be. That's funny. Cool. We don't need to know anything else yeah. except yeah. for like what outfits they were wearing. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's how it gets into the hands of this guy uh, who's a laborer in California. And okay. uh, he starts teaching Elise Hall. Um, right. So uh, unfortunately, her husband dies in 1897, leaving his entire estate to Elise and uh, making her very wealthy. Uh, which is not unfortunate. Uh, she moves back to Boston, and this is when her saxophone activities really take off. I think it's pretty clear that the access to musical resources that she has in Boston creates much more opportunity for her. Uh, if her husband had stayed alive longer and they'd remained in California, it, it's quite likely that that she wouldn't have influenced, um, you know, the development of the instrument the way that she did. Right. So in 1899, she begins taking saxophone lessons with George Longhi, uh, who founded the Boston Orchestral Club. Um, Longhi, I, th- I think, is the name of, uh, isn't there quite a famous music school in Boston called the, the Longhi School? I'm not familiar. Uh, I yeah, I, I think there is. I should have looked that up. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to know what sort of things she was studying with him and, and you know, what this, what the, what the level of pedagogy was. Um, Closet uh, died in 1880, so we can probably assume that, that his exercises or similar ones um, would have been available. And, and also like people like Carl Behrman, um, I imagine that that would be kind of the basis for her technical studies. Mm-hmm. They were both kind of mid 19th century guys. So that stuff would have been pretty, pretty widely known. Do we have an idea of uh, whether the instrument itself was at all different than what we know today? Or was it pretty much what it was at that point? So I I think we can assume it would have been pretty different. Um, 
you know, Summer Paris doesn't start making saxophones, I think, until uh, 1922, maybe. Uh, okay. So people out there listening to this, go to my website and leave comments about why I should know this <laughs> and how I don't know. I, I just, think, shame, just shame yeah, all just over it. <laughs> so they start making, yeah, they start making saxophones, I think, in the 20s. Um, Yamaha doesn't make a, a saxophone, I think, until 1967. Mm-hmm. um so i don't i don't know who would have been making saxophones if these would have been just kind of like independent brass makers um i think that this it probably would have been uh like uh quite large bore mouthpieces uh like more right. similar to the adolf sax um kind of thing mm-hmm. um yeah it would be really interesting to know uh, we'll, we'll get maybe to a little bit more about that in a little bit, actually. Um, so we can really only speculate what her studies would have accompanied, uh, encompassed, though at least ex- at least expressed some pretty strong opinions about music education later in a 1910 edition of Musical America, where she said, quote, conservatories should be subventioned by the state or the city and that none but the talented should be admitted to the classes, and that professors should be only musicians of the highest renown. If someone without talent wishes to take lessons, very good, but let him or her take them at home and pay a private teacher. There is too much finance in the matter here, and one can command the services of the best teacher by paying his price." Unquote. I, 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 just a very odd quote. Uh, it uh, is. But she's so she's essentially saying that only conservatories should be places that only really talented people can go. She's like, if you want to learn to play music and you're not good, like that's cool, but you should just pay a private teacher. The conservatory is like, this is where we do like serious business. And right. And this is where like you can sort of like bounce off of the people around you and who are like on the same level as you instead of like someone mucking it up who like still doesn't know what the fingerings are yet, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 It's kind of interesting that she that she makes that quote um, because she's like a lifelong amateur, right? Like she's she's not someone that that goes into the conservatory. She doesn't have that that sort of training, but she like seems to have like a a chip on her shoulder about it or something. I don't... Yeah. Well, I guess I wonder if that's so. She never goes to the conservatory herself. No. So I wonder if this also kind of comes from maybe like her teachers griping about the bigger scenario and her being a person who has a lot of money might be like well like if you have money then just use it to like get a teacher at home instead of like i don't know you know what i mean like yeah it's um she definitely has a a chip on her shoulder about the musical culture in america i don't have the full quote from that article, but after after that part that I just read, she goes on to talk about how the culture in America isn't developed as it is in Europe. And she talks about uh, this thing that I think was probably somewhat true, but is also probably like more romanticized. She's like, you know, all the students and, and professionals like go to cafes and discuss uh, ideas about art of the day. And, and, and there definitely was some of that stuff, but I, I think even now we still kind of like, you know, romanticize that idea that like in Vienna, like, yeah, art students are sitting around talking about modern trends in opera. And right. I don't know. I live in Europe. I don't see it happening. 
<laughs> they're talking about the same shit everywhere. <laughs> yeah, literally, right? Yeah. It's also interesting because like, yes, there would have been like, obviously a lot of people living in the United States for quite a long time at that time. But all of those people came from not the United States who we're talking about right now. And so she's literally like, there's yeah. no culture here, which I understand like the what's behind that, but it's just funny. Like there's no culture here, but yet everyone who we're interacting with is someone who's also from Europe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> In only, the context of this. Only like rich families like hers are like, they're the ones like, you know, like making the culture. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess it could be frustrating if you're trying to build a bunch of, you know, maybe it's not going your way. That could be frustrating. Mm-hmm. Or it could also just be a criticism of yourself. Like mm-hmm. maybe, maybe you have to do more than like, just put your name on buildings. Sure. <laughs> something to think about <laughs> i don't know i mean i really can identify with that <laughs> yeah it's it's a problem that that a lot of us have yeah <laughs> so hall received much of her musical education in paris uh where as a member of high society she had access to the most fashionable and cutting-edge composers she also believed that most students are not taught to listen to music properly and that this could be remedied by offering extensive solfege classes this is like something that she specifically thinks that more students should do. And I totally agree. I also agree. Um, I am. I, we just, I think we maybe skipped a little bit of when she moved to Paris. Well, she was born in Paris and I, th- right. I think her family just probably goes there a lot. Okay. So when you say like her, her musical education, we're talking about like when she was young. Yeah. And I, I think it's probably like when she's on trips over there, then she's like really immersing herself in the culture. And then, you know, when they're back in Santa Barbara or whatever, like there probably just isn't that much opportunity. Right. Or, or maybe even Boston, you know, to a lesser extent, but so I, I think that that means maybe less, less in terms of like a formal education in Paris and more just Every time she went there, like uh, whatever was going on culturally, like rubbed off on her. That's what I take it to mean. Solfege mm-hmm. is the answer, um, which I suppose means. Um, I think I think what she's saying is when people listen to music, they they just have a pretty sort of shallow understanding of it and and don't really understand maybe like thematic or harmonic things. And and she she thinks that by studying solfege they'll you know be able to recognize okay now this melody is being presented in a minor key in this development section or or that sort of thing which uh you know if we were teaching our children to do that sort of stuff as part of basic education that would be pretty cool i think it would be very cool yeah yeah 1901 was a big year for hall she premiered her first commission charles martin leffler's divertissement espagnol It's quite remarkable that she performs her first commission only six years after beginning to study the saxophone. Yes. I mean, I started when I was nine. I assume it was probably about the same for you. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Like nine or 10. I played other instruments before. Oh, did you? But yeah, it was about, yeah, probably 10 years old was saxophone. Yeah. I mean, no one, obviously she's a full grown adult at this point, but uh, no one would have wanted to hear me six years in. And I certainly wasn't commissioning any works. Absolutely not. <laughs> you're still doing the thing where like you had to practice for 30 minutes and your parents put it on a timer on and then you just yeah, like yeah. would wind the timer down. <laughs> You'd have a stopwatch and like, yeah. 
Yeah. And like, if you didn't practice enough, then your teacher would be like, all right, now you have to practice 35 minutes a week <laughs> or a day. Or a <laughs> so uh, this work was lost for many years um, and it was rediscovered by Dr. Paul Cohen in the 1980s. Uh, yeah. This work is thought I was going to be- ask if you had ever played it before. I uh, have not. No, I I don't even think I've heard it. Um, Same. It's not familiar to me. Um, Arno Bornkamp put out an album. Um, I think it's called the Elise Hall Collection. And it's a lot of these early works. I, although I couldn't tell you if that one specifically is on there. I, I imagine it is. Um, so, yeah, so Paul Cohen finds it in the 1980s. Um, it's thought to be only the second piece ever written for the saxophone and orchestra. Um, yeah, the second piece. Uh, it also seems likely that the piece was not heard between 1903 when Hall uh, was believed to have last performed it and the 80s when Dr. Cohen uh, performed it at the Manhattan School. Wow. Yeah. Um, I hate to ask this question, but... I'm sure you know the answer. Do we know if she was actually good? Well, we'll we'll get into that in a bit. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that was like we have, we haven't even like really approached that, but I'm like, yeah, maybe she wasn't. <laughs> we're sort of obliquely getting into that, I guess. Okay, gotcha. Um, okay. So Cohen's research at the New England Conservatory Elise Hall Collection and in the Library of Congress also unearthed another significant piece, and this is Leffler's Ballad Carnivalesque which is scored for flute, oboe, bassoon, alto saxophone, and piano. Hall performed this work twice in 1904 and 1905, and it's significant because it's really the first chamber work where the saxophone is treated as an equal to the other instruments, uh, rather than as sort of like a, a color or a novelty or a, you know, sort of exotic thing. Like a oompa? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so Charles Leffler was the assistant principal violinist of the Boston Symphony. Um, and so he would have definitely known George Longhi, uh, who was the oboist in the orchestra, and, and Longhi is um, Hall's teacher. Right. Uh, so both of these really fine musicians coached and championed the Boston Orchestral Club, which was a group of enthusiastic and talented amateur players who were just not, you know, at the level of uh, the Boston <laughs> Symphony. And this is a group that uh, Hall comes to lead. Um, seems quite logical that that she would have approached Leffler as one of her first kind of commission uh, targets, uh, since, yeah. you know, since he uh, she would have known him and and through her teacher. Right. Nineteen oh one is also the year that she commissions Debussy, uh, but we'll get into that a little bit more in a bit. So in nineteen oh four, she premiered Vincent Dandy, uh, his piece Coral Varier. Uh, in Boston <laughs> and in Paris. That piece is definitely on the, uh, um, I think it's the first track on that Arno Bornkamp album I was talking about earlier. So I'm just going to butcher these French pronunciations. Uh, You're doing a beautiful job. Just keep going. There's there's <laughs> a, I, I was looking up how to say Vincent Dandy earlier mm -hmm. on YouTube and just like playing it again and again. And it would sound like, <laughs> but I would say it exactly the same and it would sound totally different once it was outside of my mouth. And yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. So she becomes the president of the Boston Orchestral Club. Uh, and it's quite interesting to me that someone who was such a proponent of the saxophone uh, became the president of such an important orchestral society, you know, in this mm -hmm. major city. 
you can imagine how attitudes towards saxophone, you know, might've prevented something like this, or, or at least led to a significant amount of snobbery. For sure. I like to think that, that her ability to get this post was, was maybe because of just her innate passion for music and, and her ability to lead her fellow music lovers. Um, the fact that she had a lot of money probably also went a long way to making this possible. Although that's. And it sounds like she was kind of like on the inside a little bit with a few people who mattered in that scenario. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, it's, it's really interesting to me. Like I, I don't think that myself that I could like, you know, get into a thing like that here. Like, yeah. I think they'd just be like, well, you don't, you don't know about this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You <laughs> that's not a part of this yeah this well over 100 years later you know yeah um, so in 1909 hall becomes the first amateur in air quotes musician to play with the boston symphony and she plays bizet's first larlizane suite um okay. terrible pronunciation great piece <laughs> uh, apparently the orchestra programmed the work and she was the only competent saxophonist around to play the excerpts which i mean how, how great is that like yeah, it's wonderful <laughs> the boston symphony needs a saxophonist and you're literally the only one around that knows how to do it like yeah like it would never happen <laughs> yeah I, I mean, you can imagine like, like players all over the east coast and like beyond you know yeah. over that now uh yeah i have a question that um because she, so she's playing just, she's not playing as a soloist. She's playing uh, just a, this actual part in a piece. Yeah, I, I'm i not super familiar with that piece. I, I don't know if it's like a, I think there is a, a saxophone solo in it. But it's not like, it's, it's not like a rhythm or solo. Okay. Yeah. So are there other women in the orchestra at this time or is it mostly men? Oh, that's a great question. I, um, I don't know. Because that does feel, it feels like, just in my experience with us going to school in the early 2000s, and it's still a very, like, male-heavy instrument, but most of music, and it's, like, instrumental professional music is mostly men still. Yeah, still. And and I I can't, I don't have, like, a number to give you, but, like, it's... You can see it. And I'm wondering if like at that time in life, like if it was a odd that someone was playing the saxophone who was a woman and B that they were like the only person who would be hired into an orchestra that's probably heavily populated with men. Yeah. I you can imagine like, you know, that photo that we looked at earlier, like her wearing that like big headdress and like yeah. kind of sitting in the middle of the orchestra of a, like a bunch of dudes <laughs> and, and yeah. <laughs> it's a great question. I I, I think the question is, um, like, were women allowed to play in the Paris. Boston Symphony at that yeah, time? Right. I'm, I'm not sure if they were or not. Um, this is going to like border on libel, maybe. But I think like the Berlin <laughs> Philharmonic, you know, maybe didn't allow women in until like, like pretty, like maybe during our lifetimes or something like that. Wow. Uh, that I might, I shouldn't say that. That might be just totally wrong, but. I'm curious yeah. enough that as you as we move on, I'm going to look up if there's any information about the Boston Symphony in that period of time. Okay, yeah. But go so, on. Uh, so yeah, it it would have been really interesting to hear how she sounded, and there is actually a little bit um, 
a little bit written about it. And that same 1910 issue of Musical America that had that quote from her earlier details the concert at length. Uh, it, it says that, uh, quote, the hall was very warm and the orchestra was very sharp as a result, but that Hall's <laughs> intuition, uh, in spite of conditions, was true, unquote. I quite like that. I like <laughs> they, they basically said nothing. <laughs> Uh, I went, I went to like concert. <laughs> yeah, I was there. Uh, I stayed away. <laughs> no, they're like, they're like, yeah, it was really hot in the hall and the orchestra was crazy sharp as, you know, orchestras tend to be anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, and she played in tune, which they're probably like, that guy, maybe that reviewer had heard like one saxophonist before or something. and was like, well, that instrument right. never plays in tune. Like that thing's right. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so this doesn't actually like... Um directly answer the question, but I have found a photograph of the Boston Symphony in 1891. And there is not a single woman in this photograph. Right. So that kind of gives us a little bit of context. Yeah. So probably this is only what 18 years later or something. Yeah. Right. Probably not a lot more women in there. Yeah. And I'm only bringing it up because just to point out just how maybe amazing and special this whole entire story is well i we're going to get to that a little bit later in the end and, and that's that's kind of a major theme of this and uh, we haven't we haven't really you know said it out loud until now but yeah that's definitely a big part of this um i i really quite like that review where, where the only thing i said was like yeah she played in tune um you know we talked about what kind of instrument she would have been playing earlier and and i'm sure it was you know quite crude compared to what what we're mm-hmm. thinking about and like i mean you know how difficult it is like how much time do we spend like just trying to play things in tune like just trying to get the tuner to you know sit right in the middle or or whatever and yeah she, over yeah, the course of like many things yeah yeah and so she comes into this orchestral orchestral situation which was probably somewhere between like bizarre to hostile to, you know, who knows, just odd. And it's like really hot. The orchestra's crazy sharp and she's got this weird instrument that's like not really developed. And she's just like, oh, and she's like losing her hearing. And she's like, right. yeah, I got this. No worries. <laughs> okay, I don't know. I think that's Let's go girl. <laughs> cool, right? Yeah. Um, so when I when I was putting this together, I typed into Google what type of saxophone did Elise Hall play, and the response was concert saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> Thank really you. Thank us. you so much. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna need like ten more years before Google can like really answer that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, time travel will be involved in that. Uh huh. <laughs> so at this point, there's there's kind of like a fifteen year gap where not a ton is written about her. Uh, and I assume this is she's just sort of keeping up with life, running the orchestral society and that, you know, she's she's doing a lot of commissions, but there aren't really any, you know, it's not the first time anything's been done. So it's it's just it didn't make enough waves that, you know, we still have records of it today or or that are easily found. Uh, Pierre Mayer, my Meyer, very different spelling, but possibly quite similar sounding name to mine. M-A-Y-E-U-R. Pierre premieres Debussy's Rhapsody in 1919 in Paris. Although it was commissioned by Hall and she did receive a copy, she never performed the work. Um, 
which we can we can get into later. You know, it might have been too difficult, or maybe she just didn't like it, or perhaps it was her health. Um, Elise gave her last public performance on the 28th of January in 1920, due to her increasing deafness and decreasing health, basically. Uh, said that she was nearly completely deaf during this performance, which featured her second commission of André Caplet, titled Impression d'Orton, Elegy pour Saxophone. Uh, and then she dies in 1924 in Westwood, Massachusetts. I think one of the major questions surrounding Elise Hall is how does her life fit with traditional female roles at the time? It's fascinating to think of her taking the stage as a soloist in a time when women were very much second-class citizens. For context, the first women's suffrage law was passed in the territory of Wyoming, of all places, in 1869, uh, and that would have been when Hall was 16, uh, if we believe, uh, you know, one of her birth dates. <laughs> um, it's not until 1900, which is just before Hall's commissioning Debussy, that every state passed some version of legislation modeled after New York's Married Women's Property Act, which granted married women at least some amount of control over their property and earnings. Um, in, in 1920, just four years before she dies, the 19th Amendment is ratified, making voting discrimination based on sex illegal. This is interesting because she's born into a world that clearly does not see women as equal to men in any regard, but her life overlaps pretty much exactly with the women's suffrage movement in America. And she was clearly a woman who's sort of stepping out of traditional roles, mm -hmm. you know, at the, at the same time that sort of the suffragettes were. And Is it uh, anything worth pointing out that just like she seemed to be like a wealthy person for the entirety of her life? Totally. I, or maybe she was existing on a different in a different context. I, I think it, ways. I think that, you know, she she definitely had a, a level of privilege that maybe allowed her to sort of transcend some of the um, um, gender, uh, you know, strictures of the time. I don't think she would have been able to do a lot of this if she was a working class woman or, or certainly if she was uh, African-American or or another minority you know even if if she had been like irish or something at that time right. yeah yeah so how proficient of a player do you think she was it's hard to say because one thing that you mentioned earlier was when we were talking about what what instrument is she playing at this time and yeah. you mentioned a large bore mouthpiece that's, I, I mean, that's just like my own speculation, but I, it seems to be, this might've even been like at the time when instruments would have been, you know, stamped with like high pitch or low pitch, you mm -hmm. know, how used to like, uh, like some brass instruments would be like made for what, like 432 or something or. Okay. No, I didn't know that. Um, what I was thinking though, was that in my experience, a larger bore mouthpiece is much easier to work with if you're just trying to get a sound mm -hmm. than small so like if that's what if we're starting from that point where like she's using some sort of instrument that's probably pretty close to what sex ones are now but we don't really know and but we, what we might know about it is that the like starting mechanism of just creating a pitch is one that fundamentally is like a little bit easier to work with than what classical saxophone players today are using. 
I feel like small chamber mouthpieces are easier. I know this is probably a just weird debate to have, but it might be. But but I think about like, and we are also just coming from a totally different context than she was at the time because like we've been able to like we've had access to a million things that allow us to be like I wanted to sound like so specifically like this, and this is how what I need to do to get there. And well, for her, yeah. she was like I like she was like in the midst of like creating what that instrument sounds like. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, we could you could go and listen to anyone from, you know, Marcel Mule to Clarence Clemens easily now, but she, there would have been really no one for her to listen to. I mean, her teacher was a uh, an oboe player, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, but you did also mention that she's spending time in Paris fairly regularly. That's true. And yeah. that's that is the place where like there would have been a lot of there. Yeah. Definitely. And that's like where a lot of repertoire came from. And that was like, like certainly for a long period of time, the only repertoire for the saxophone was written by French composers. Mm-hmm. And so if, if she's having that exposure and we've heard some recordings, at least maybe not from that long ago, but like long enough ago that we can understand the difference in like what that instrument sounded like back then. to oh, now. Yeah, totally. yeah. And the, the, well, the conception of vibrato and uh, mm-hmm. sort of that, strident isn't the word but uh like a a brilliance you know that they played with that i think would be considered unfashionable now definitely and i also like i i wonder at times like how much of that has to do with the recording itself because if you think about like just i mean and not not to say that like that's all that's happening but i think that's like having an effect on on it Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't. A lot of those orchestras, like even the strings and stuff, often sound like quite steely, mm-hmm. and they certainly those instruments like wouldn't have had you know they wouldn't have been sounding as as bright as uh, like modern strings on a violin would. And right. Yeah. What do you think? Well, sound like I've got a little bit of evidence. I've pieced together what I what I think her playing was like. Okay. So she's often described as an amateur. I think she sort of described herself as an amateur throughout her life. Um, she never performed the WC Rhapsody, arguably her most famous commission. In regard to her orchestral aspirations and her commissioning, Dr. Paul Cohen says, quote, she was interested in pieces like Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn by WC, where the flute has a really great part, but the flute stays within the woodwind section and, and it's still a featured soloist, but it's not uh, a soloist as in like a concerto kind of thing where, where you're coming mm-hmm. out in front and, and you are, it's you and the orchestra. You're, you're still contained within the orchestra, if that makes yes. sense. But a very like high featured instrument. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is still continuing that quote. So we see some of these pieces are very beautiful, very lyrical, not particularly complicated and use the saxophone voice as a beautiful haunting voice throughout. Um, but it doesn't really take over the reins in a featured solo capacity, end quote. That uh, maybe didn't make a lot of sense because we got in that digression in the middle. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Um, basically, at the time, there weren't many pieces for orchestra that used the saxophone other than the the Bizet piece, uh, the Arlison Suites, um, and that was about the extent of it. Uh, so we find more evidence for her desire to, to create works that use the saxophone extensively, but were not necessarily in a solo capacity in the wording of her commission to Claude Debussy, where she requested a piece for orchestra, a saxophone, obligé. 
Uh, we can take it to mean a piece for saxophone that has a specific or obligato saxophone part, which to my mind is very different from a concerto or other solo work for the saxophone and orchestra. Mm -hmm. if, if we think about how the term obligato was used to indicate um, a specific line to be played, as opposed to uh, ad libitum accompaniment, uh, like by the basso continuo during the Baroque period, maybe get a clearer picture of, of what she really wanted. So, mm -hmm. so she wants a, a piece where the saxophone is, yeah, it's playing an important part and it's it's got an important color, but it's not it's not really a concerto, I think. Um, that's kind of interesting because I I think every time I've seen the Rhapsody performed, I mean, the soloist is standing out front. Um, yes. You know, but I think she kind of envisioned it. You know, she's going to sit, I guess, what next to the clarinets or whatever between the clarinets and bassoons or something. So is your sort of point in this that because she wasn't um, she wasn't coming into it being like, put me out there, put me out front, I got it. You yeah, think that maybe her her skill level and because she kept referring to herself as an amateur, that her skill level was maybe like uh, at amateurish, like in a way. But but yeah, there's evidence of her playing with the Boston Symphony and yeah. it, and it's hard to believe that like there really wasn't anyone else in Boston at that time playing that instrument well enough to do what she was doing. Or a, a clarinet so, player or a, a bassoonist or something. Right. Like. Because that's still what happens now is that like, there'll be like, there's no saxophones or players around, like have just hand a saxophone to the clarinet player. And like, you know, we hate that, but like that's what yeah. happens. Even right now that happens. <laughs> yeah. So I just the other day, I, I was like, how many saxophone players are there in the world? And so I just typed that into Google. And <laughs> it's like, it's an insane question, right? I love that question. <laughs> but it, it estimated that there were 300,000 professional saxophone players in the world, like whatever that means. Okay. Which... I don't know. I mean, it, it could be, it could be right. But like, you know, so you're saying like, yeah, there's, there's no saxophone players wrong. We'll just get the clarinetist to do it. Like, like, no, there yeah. are people around, like, you know, absolutely. And yeah. there are people that will travel. Yes. But I think, yeah, I think that is the point. Like she wants to, she wants a work that's going to feature the instrument, but she's not, you know, to, to use the opposite extreme, she's not like a Paganini kind of feature. Like she's she's not like, I want to be standing out front and like showing all my stuff that I can do or whatever. Yeah. Do Is there any kind of like um, reference to her talking about why that instrument in particular is important to her? Not that I like, found. Does she ever, she never like says like, I feel kindred with this or anything? I didn't find anything about that. And I think that that's, it's so interesting. It's, it's interesting to me for two reasons. The first is that like, so she she's into orchestral music. I mean, that's that's sort of all the music that there is at the time, right? There's orchestral music, right. there's probably a little bit of folk music around, but. Right. So she's into this kind of music that just doesn't have the saxophone in it. Like if you're so into that, like why why not play the violin or, or play the flute or, or, yeah. or, the or something, you know? Like yeah. why the saxophone? I, and and I don't have an answer for that. And the other, reason, the other reason it's so interesting to me is because I feel the same way. Like I just wanted to play the saxophone from a young age. And I, I have no recollection of like where I got that idea from or like what it is. I, I don't clearly remember seeing one and thinking like, oh, yeah, I like mm -hmm. that's just all I've wanted to do, you know, and I. Mm -hmm. 
so maybe you know maybe there is something in that what, what was it like for you um i so i played violin from the age of four for maybe oh, wow. three years and did like suzuki and and all that and then from seven to ten i decided to play the piano but i was very that was like a period of time where i was just like i hate this like like i don't know what it was about it but i really struggled with like I mean, it was probably more like defiance with like my parents were just like, you have to do this. And I was just like, I don't want to do it, you know? Yeah. And then, but they were like, it doesn't matter what you do, you have to play an instrument. And so at that, there was some like point in that where like I, we, I was being homeschooled at the time too. So I'm not sure like where the exposure would have been, right. but there we were going to the music school settlement in Cleveland and uh, my sister was taking flute lessons and there was a guy there who taught saxophone who I think I just thought he would looked cool. I was like, this guy seems cool and he's nice. Huh. And I will play the saxophone now. And I remember like we rented my saxophone like the day that I like decided to do it and we took it home and we didn't know that like you had to have a read. Of course. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, so it's just like, but I remember that. I remember being very excited about playing it or uh, trying to play it and then just getting uh, home and being like, we can't do anything with this. And my parents uh, were like, we don't know what's going on here. <laughs> 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 yeah I kind of I'm curious though because about about uh Elise Hall because we as you told me it's her husband who tells her to play this instrument yeah as a means of like preventing further hearing loss okay. and so like but I also like we don't know much about the dynamic of their relationship and like is her connection with that instrument because he dies not long after her this whole thing starts maybe it's this like whatever like emotional attachment to it too or she's like that ties me to the person that i lost like that's like reaching but maybe you know it's it's, it's possible i mean uh, uh spoiler i didn't read uh bill street's you know whole book maybe maybe there are maybe there were some diaries or something that where that's explained but uh that's a little bit deeper than I went into it. Yeah. It, it's yeah. a great, it's a great question. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. Like why, why the saxophone? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and especially like, I, I guess even why the saxophone now, like when you said 300,000 people are professionally playing that instrument. According to well, that, that sounds like a lot, but I bet if you looked up like how many people are professionally playing the violin, it's like millions of people are doing that. Yeah, probably. So, and so like, when when I was working at Selmer and we were making the clarinets, we made 112 B flat clarinets every day. And I used to think like, like, where do all these clarinets go? Like who who needs what's so that's 2000 clarinets a month, right? Like where yeah. are 2000 clarinets? That's what, 20,000 a year, you know, roughly like what? Yeah. Who needs 20,000 new clarinets? Like, you know. Totally. Like how many people out there are doing this? And, it, you know, it's the same with, with every instrument, with trumpets, with saxophones, whatever. And that's just one company. Yeah, like, yeah that's a pretty even, incredible. They, they're not even or weren't the largest manufacturer at the time. You know, I think Yamaha was like, like, that's so many instruments, like just new instruments going out into the world every day. Like, presumably, that's a person starting. I don't know. Like, it just seems like a ton of players. Yeah. And, you know, like, <clears throat> it's funny when um, I meet new people and they're like, and then the topic of music comes around and what instruments that everyone's played and everything. And then I will say something about playing the saxophone. And then 
person I'm talking to who's new to me is like, I played the saxophone too. And I'm like, yeah. cool, tell me about that. And then they're like, yeah, when I was in like sixth, seventh and eighth grade, I played the saxophone. We were like the same. And I'm like, oh, we're definitely not the same, but cool. That's great. You know. <laughs> but I think that that's like, there's an element of that too, where someone's like, if you put that instrument in my face, I probably could do something with it. Yeah, versus yeah. like, I studied this instrument for like night and day for many years. And like, in a very intense way and like tortured myself. (laughs) (laughs) Literally this morning I had that conversation. I was in the dog park and I was, uh, there's a guy that I've kind of become friends with who's a a bricklayer. He was like, uh, you know, what are you, what are you doing this weekend or whatever? And I said that we were going to record this podcast. And so he asked, you know, he doesn't know that I I play music or anything. uh, so he, he was asking what the subject was. And I said, Oh, you know, we're talking about the uh, history of the saxophone and Elise Hall. And he goes, Oh, oh you, I, I play the clarinet. I was, uh, I was grade five or, you know, they do the grading system here in England. Uh-huh. I was like, Oh, that's, that's cool. He, he goes, well, you must be really good then. What do you, what do you like grade eight? Or I was like, well, I, I mean, I have a master's degree or what, you know, like, <laughs> and you like make money doing it now. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, but I, it's it's weird. Like, you know, when you have that conversation you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, make myself sound like something, but it's, nope. it's yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. You're not trying to like, when you get in that asshole. situation, you're like, no, like I, I went a little further. Like, yeah, I, I did the like torture and stuff, you know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, to get back into uh, Rhapsody, so uh, we can get a little bit more uh, evidence for for her kind of what she what type of commission she wanted. Um, following the premiere of the Rhapsody in Paris, the critic Albert Bestelin, Bestelin wrote in Le Courrier Musical, the Rhapsody Port Orchestra and Saxophone by Claude Debussy does not, as you might imagine, take on the character of a concerted work. It appears rather as an orchestral tableau in which the singular character of the principal instrument's timbre is chiefly displayed, unlike virtuoso writing, which does not show off this aspect. By the importance of its proportions, the richness of its colors, the rare zest of its musical quality, this work, which allies itself to the best, which has been written by its author, is worthy of the nocturnes and images. So, uh, end quote. So this critic like really likes the piece and and he's saying that it's it's just as she wanted. It's it's not a, a work for saxophone and orchestra. It's a, an orchestral work in which the saxophone is featured. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, it seems that the piece was received at least by this critic. Yeah, exactly. As, as she intended. Um, and, and it's not really a solo work. Uh, also, the programs for the premiere performance listed the names of the violin, voice, and piano soloist for the other works on the program, but did not list the, the name of the saxophone soloist, Pierre Mayer. Uh, and I wonder if maybe he was just a last minute addition, or if it was a genuine mistake, or if there was some kind of snobbery, or or perhaps the piece just really wasn't conceived as, as or perceived as a, like a concerto type thing, and, you know, therefore not meriting his name as a, a soloist in the program, mm-hmm. which would be in line with Hall's directive. Um, I don't think there's yeah. any, any way to know that, but it's it's kind of an interesting, like, oh, maybe this is not the thing that we've kind of made it into, you know? Yeah, but I think it's also important to remember the context of going to the orchestra at that period of time. 
where like everybody was doing that. Everybody was like all classes of people were going to hear live orchestral music to a certain degree. Okay. That's not really my point. My point is that, uh, that, it's not huge part some of, people were doing that and some people were going to see rock concerts or something. You were either going to see that or you weren't going or you to were exactly yes. And because that's the context, any everyone who is participating in going to see live music has a very strong opinion on what that what that music means and and what that means in the context of like religion and like daily life and all that and the yeah. amount of people who are often offended and afraid of new music yeah. is like very large and like not it's like a weird thing to think about right now is that like that people were literally like afraid when like instruments were making certain sounds at different points in time and well, were like reacting as a crowd to something happening that was a new sound that they hadn't heard before and the only reason i bring this up is because maybe at the time there was some awareness of like if we put the saxophone on the same list of soloists with a vocalist and a piano player, you know, and then like, yeah. then it's like, people are going to be like, what the fuck's going on with that? Like, you know, yeah. like the amount of people would be offended and we would be like, well, I'm not coming back to this orchestra because they're not a real orchestra anymore. Like that's, that's insane. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just, yeah. yeah. I I think, I think you're exactly right about that. And especially like considering that this was Paris this was in Paris where this happened, and it was, uh, uh, I said the year, what was it? Um, uh, oh, 1919. So when when was like, um, the right of spring was what, 1911? I don't know, but you would yeah. know better than me. Well, I should know. I, I want to say this. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was like, you know, within a decade or two of that, right? Like, in in that uproar, you know, the whole thing with, what was it, Diaghilev, like yelling the counts for the for the dancers or whatever from the wings and because of the roar of the audience being, you know, so offended by the music. Yeah, yeah, you're totally right about that. Um, I've I've got a couple of other um, reactions to the to the work when it was performed uh, after the 1927 u.s premiere of the piece a critic from the philadelphia inquirer stated that quote the saxophone was often indistinguishable as a solo instrument uh, unquote and a, a critique of a swiss performance described the work as quote specifically composed to showcase the solo instrument timbre and as a colorful sound impression with a single great melodic span where connections with afternoon of a fawn are still shimmeringly audible, unquote, which is like, I, I just think that one's interesting because she had specifically, you know, sort of mentioned afternoon of a fawn, and, mm-hmm. you know, that I guess naturally they would make that comparison because that was probably his, um, up until Peleus and Melisande, that was probably his his best known work, right? Because uh, he doesn't write the uh, Nocturnes, I think, until right after this piece. Um, it seems that Hall's desires for a work like this were matched exceedingly well with Debussy's talents, particularly his mastery of color. Ironically, when Ernest Ansermet Ansermet 
adapted and reorchestrated the work for Sigurd Rascher in 1935 by adding many of the orchestral themes into this saxophone part. Basically, he he turns it into a concerto style work. He, he puts a lot of stuff that wasn't in the original version, like takes stuff from all the other parts and gives it to the saxophone. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, it, it was met with a pretty lukewarm reception uh, from a critic from the New York Times who said, uh, quote, it is far from WC's best effort for the material commonplace in itself is ill-organized and beyond the redemption of its expectedly fine orchestration. WC was scarcely stimulated by the instrument for the Rhapsody does little to illuminate its peculiar capacities. I, I, I think it's interesting that, uh, yeah, just by changing it around and making it into more of a, a solo work, it, it got this pretty, pretty tepid response. And it's possible that that guy just, didn't like it or whatever but it is but it also i think if you are familiar with wc's work i could that that makes sense to me that like there's probably like a lot of very intentional reasons for having different instruments playing different things because he's a very like color driven composer so if you just like or if the same instrument then it's not a conversation anymore then it's just like because his music sounds very conversational to me, at least like the mm-hmm. the different instruments that are like doing things. But that makes sense. I think that also like it's weird when it's weird to like just take a piece of music that's existed for that long and then be like, no, nah, it's going to be this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, I I think that that sort of thing was maybe more common in the past. Mm-hmm. To uh, I don't know. I mean, I can think of examples of that sort of thing that I like, like um, Otis Murphy has that recording of the, I think it's called Tosca Fantasy or something, where it's just like a bunch of themes from Tosca sort of, uh, you know, woven into a, you know, it's not like, certainly not like cutting edge or anything, but it's like, uh, it's well orchestrated. And and obviously like his playing is beautiful. And Mm -hmm. that's maybe a sort of version of that. Maybe that's a little bit different because it's not, like the same piece, just like, I'll just move around the internal parts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's like adding something to it. Yeah. 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 I also was thinking about like the dynamic of, so the original version of this piece, the difference between having the saxophone players sit in the orchestra or having them stand up in front of the orchestra as it was originally written and Mm -hmm. what impact that would have on the listener because they're and like this is something that like you and I have both played in like many ensembles in our lives and like when you're sitting inside of the orchestra you hear you hear music's totally different like you are so close to all the little things that are happening that all together create this effect that the audience member is hearing Mm -hmm. and so as an audience member if you are having to focus solely on one instrument even when they're the parts that they're playing are not the thing that's the most important and they in fact are meant to be like a supportive role of something else yeah i think it would change the experience i yeah, i totally agree and i think you know you and i have also stood out in front of an orchestra mm-hmm. and, and that's different too because i it's it's almost less interactive or something you you know totally. your back is to them for one thing mm-hmm. it's, mm-hmm. it seems less collaborative like you you sort of like you have some pretty good trust that they're going to like do the thing that they're supposed to do. And, you know, right. they're listening to you, but it's, it's sort of filtered through the conductor. And uh, 
but if you know if you're sitting right next to someone and and you're playing the line together you like you kind of like your, your bodies move a little bit together you see mm-hmm. each other breathe and and there's like there's that kind of thing that's different yeah yeah i think you're i think you're totally right to bring that up like maybe that piece should be conceived of more like like uh, like mio uh, the, the creation of the world um mm-hmm. I think the soloist usually sits within the orchestra, right? Even even though, I mean, that piece isn't listed as a solo piece for saxophone, is it? It's not, but there's so much, there's so much of an important yeah. saxophone part in there because I think it's like certainly considered a part of the repertoire. Yeah, and and it's also that's like chamber orchestra. Yeah, that's true. So it's, it's a smaller a, setting, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe there's multiple ways to stage that mm. yeah that's also i love what was like the, the end of the last quote that you said was something like about the saxophone itself like it's peculiar something wc uh, was scarcely stimulated by the instrument for the rhapsody does little to illuminate its peculiar capacities and yeah. i just love that as like <laughs> as a person who's like spent so much time with this instrument and like I've I know other instruments to a certain degree, and saxophone does strike me as one that's just odd. Like it has like yeah. there's so much it can do, and there's it's so poorly understood by most people in the world, even people who have sort of like played it at an amateur level. Yeah. And I feel like we have a little bit to thank this person, Elise, for for like <laughs> for yeah. helping just like keep it going yeah. in a time where like maybe it was just going to get like thrown into the ocean. You know? Well, and yeah, <laughs> like literally, like the French Navy was just gonna like push him over the edge and like, <laughs> yeah. like yeah, like she she puts it in the hands of a master orchestrator and is like you right. know make something with this. Like here's this clay, like sculpted into something. Yeah, that's a great point. So altogether, uh, Hall commissioned 22 works, uh, and only one of them, which was Paul Gilson's premier concerto, was truly a concerto-style work. The others were all pieces that featured the saxophone, but not not as a standout front concerto-type soloist. And fittingly, Hall never performed Gilson's concerto, um, likely because it was too difficult. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, reviews of her playing are are pretty scant and frequently they address her attire or seem to express surprise at her gender. Um, it seems likely that, that rampant sexism probably colored most of the reviews of uh, not just her, but probably a lot of emerging female performers. Mm-hmm. During 1904, Hall was performing with the orchestra of the Société Nationale de Musique, and her, uh, which I believe is in Paris, and a review of uh, one performance describes the saxophone as well played, quote, well played by an American lady wearing a low necked evening gown of sea green, unquote. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't give us a lot to go on about, you know, how how her playing was. If, if she had. No, the, that's the, just a scandal in 1904. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> like yeah, her titties it, are out. She's playing the saxophone. <laughs> it was an American lady. Yeah, she's wearing a green dress. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Where was it? Yeah. Yeah. So that doesn't give us much to go on, but uh, a New York Times review from the same series of performance titled, quote, Madame Hall's Paris success described her as, quote, the chief attraction of this grand orchestral concert. 
unquote. And it also said that she played with masterly execution. So that's something. And mm -hmm. the old gray lady got it right. <laughs> After the premiere of her first commission, which was uh, Leffler's Divertissement Espanol for orchestra and saxophone, on the 29th of January, 1901, a review in the Boston Journal described her playing thusly, quote, Mrs. Hall displayed a beautiful quality of tone and technical mastery. It is a pity that the literature of this peculiarly impressive instrument is not larger, unquote. Which is pretty nice. They, you know, yeah. just seem to think that maybe there's something to this saxophone thing. Somebody wants to hear more? Yeah, yeah. Maybe somebody should write something for it. <laughs> In the spring of 1905, Hall performed in Paris for the second time at Saul Playel, um, which I don't know exactly what that venue is, but it's like a, a it's a, it always comes up in things. Like I, I was reading some stuff about Django Reinhardt and the, the Hot Club, and like they had a bunch of concerts there, and it was like a big deal because, you know, they were like, like really outsiders or whatever. And so that uh, that's a, pl a place that stuff happens. Okay. Um, <laughs> So anyway, she's playing a program of new works by André Caplet, Georges Longhi, uh, Charles Martin Leffler, and Vincent Dandy. Uh, Le Monde Musical said that she played, quote, unflinchingly with a pleasant sonority and a distinguished artistic sense, unquote. I like the unflinchingly in the quote. Mm -hmm. That's a good, <laughs> I like that. Mm-hmm. Of the 22 works commissioned by Hall, the Debussy Rhapsody and Legend by Florent Schmidt loom largest in our repertoire. Today, we're only going to look at the Debussy commission for time's sake. Uh, hopefully, at some point, we'll be able to come back and, and take a dive into her commissioning of Florent Schmidt. Debussy accepted Hall's prepaid commission in 1901 as he was preparing Peleus and Melisande for its premiere at the Opera Comique. The prepaid fee was likely an important factor in the composer's decision to accept the commission as he was in the midst of legal troubles and was struggling to repay the heirs to his former publisher, George Hartman. It's an interesting feat of timing as Debussy was well-known and well-respected by his peers, um, but the premiere of, uh, sort of right before the premiere of his opera, uh, Peleus and Melisande, his only opera, that brought him like true international fame. So Hall managed to sort of sneak her commission in like right before he, you know, before he blew up, uh, if ah. you know, like uh -huh. on an international scale anyway. So totally. Yeah. You know, it's, it's quite possible that had she waited three years or something that maybe he would have just been like, uh, I'm not doing that or who right. are you or, you know, that the letter wouldn't have even made it to him. Right. According to James Arnoyes. The Rhapsody started life as an orchestral sketch under the title Rhapsody Arab, um, which I guess means Arabian Rhapsody. Mm -hmm. um, Debussy had been dealing with something of a creative block and had not written any music for a year. Though Hall paid his fee in 1901 and his publisher Duran paid him in 1903, he never delivered the manuscript for some un unknown reason before he died in, in 1918. Even oh. though he never... yeah. Even though he never delivered a completed manuscript to either Hall, who commissioned him, or to Durand, to which he sold the, the work for 100 francs, Debussy managed to get paid twice for the work he never really finished. <laughs> I love that. Solid. <laughs> I paid twice and didn't even finish it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Luckily, Debussy's second wife, Emma, seems to have found the work under the title Rhapsody Maresque, Maresque and gave it to Jean-Roger Ducasse to prepare for publication. So uh, Ducasse was a student of Gabriel Faure, mm -hmm. whom he followed as professor of composition at the Paris Conservatory. He, he later succeeded uh, Ducasse as professor of orchestration and, sorry, succeeded Faure as professor of orchestration and was known for exemplifying the French style, quote, you know, air quotes of orchestration. So Ducasse gets the manuscript from Debussy's second wife and works through the spring and summer of 1918 to create a solo saxophone part, a performance score, and a piano reduction. Durand then publishes the work in 1919, and it was finally premiered in Paris by Pierre Mayer on the 14th of May. The premiere was conducted by André Caplet, another French composer uh, who was commissioned by Hall um, twice, I think. And only then was a holograph copy of the score sent to Hall in Boston. So she waited nearly 20 years to receive wow. the work that she commissioned. Yeah, that's a pretty wild, uh, pretty wild ride. Yeah, I would assume the two of them never met each other, right? It doesn't sound like it, although, uh, as we'll see, they did have a fair amount of correspondence, it seems like. Okay. Um, although it's possible that they did meet because... You know, she was going to Paris and, and she would have been sort of in that circle that, uh, you know, would have been going to probably salon concerts and, and that sort of thing. It's I think it's entirely possible that she would have been in a small room, you know, hearing Debussy play something at the piano. Um, mm -hmm. Despite this nearly 20 year gap between commission and delivery of the work, apparently Debussy had second thoughts and attempted to deliver the finished work to Hall in 1905 only four years after she'd approached the esteemed composer. <laughs> in a letter to his publisher, Duran, Debussy wrote, Madam E. Hall, the saxophone lady, is politely asking me for her fantasy. I'd like to oblige her because she's been as patient as a red Indian and deserves some reward. Uh, Does he call her the saxophone lady? <laughs> yeah, he calls her the saxophone lady and says she's been as patient as a red Indian. Amazing. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what any of that means. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think that's just, you know, this is like uh, what kind of the height of colonialism, right? So I don't right. know, racism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Unfortunately, Duran had purchased all the rights to Debussy's future output and having already paid him for the work, apparently had no interest in fulfilling his request to deliver the work. I guess... Oh. Uh, I guess maybe they had some control over what he was doing because they, you know, they had already paid for it or something. So they're like, no, we, we don't want you to waste any time. Like, we're not going to pay you to do that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So this confusion over who's who's to blame for this nearly two decade gap between commission and delivery is not the only source of murkiness surrounding the work. Noyes points out that there's something of a misconception around Debussy's desire to actually complete the commission. The story uh, of the commission is often presented as Elise Hall basically badgering this reluctant composer into writing for her, um, which is kind of how I recall learning that. Like, like she kind of like begged and begged and begged him, and and he eventually relented and was kind of like, "Here's this piece." Okay. But it turns out that maybe that's not entirely true. An early biography of Debussy by Léon Vallès, Vallat, 
Vallas, V-A-L-L-A-S, describes the commission as, quote, a disagreeable task for an irksome lady. Uh, and oh. that's, uh, that's Debussy's words, I guess. Okay. So while these sentiments clearly reflect the composer's state of mind at the outset of the task, they don't reflect the transformation that Debussy apparently underwent while writing for her. A later biography by Victor Seroff quotes Debussy as saying, quote, I've been working as hard and as good as in the good old days of Peleus, end quote. And, and even that he had been, quote, taking the enjoyment a bit too far, unquote, as he worked on the piece. I think it's safe to say from that change of heart that as a result of Elise Hall's requests or demands, Claude Debussy undertook a task that he maybe wouldn't have gotten involved with uh, on his own and found it found it quite enjoyable. You know, he, he was initially reluctant about writing for the saxophone and then uh, found it to be something enjoyable. Mm -hmm. A letter to his first wife quotes Debussy referring to the saxophone as a ridiculous instrument. And also <laughs> Paul's love for it indecent. <laughs> I love Dig that. This. <laughs> so good. It would be fascinating to know what aspect of the instrument or the process of writing for it won him over to the extent that he felt he was, you know, quote, taking the enjoyment a bit too far. Yeah. Um, huh. Noyes also notes that Debussy began work on La Mer almost immediately after the completion of the Rhapsody and that La Mer represented a stylistic change from the composer's last major work, Peleus. I mean, obviously, because that's an opera, but um, this is interesting because there, there are a lot of similarities between the melodic material and compositional techniques between the Rhapsody and La Mer. So perhaps the commission from Hall created the room and the impetus for Debussy to explore, and, and perhaps the commission filled an important link in the composer's evolving style. Just as Elise Hall's Debussy commission finally arrived, her penultimate and otherwise most notable commission was just beginning its journey from the pen of Florent Schmidt. While the Schmidt legend is probably equally famous in our repertoire, we're just not going to get into it for the sake of time today. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a story for another day. <laughs> One of the things that's so interesting to me is that Elise Hall seems to have done all that she did just out of a pure love for the saxophone and a passion for building a repertoire. I suppose that's a luxury that a well-to-do person of the time could indulge in. And perhaps it explains why many of the works she commissioned were nearly completely forgotten for decades. Paul Cohen says, quote, she was not a teacher and she had no intention of being a teacher. She was a player. A player who wanted to play with her friends in the orchestral club so that she could enjoy the expression of performing music, end quote. Cohen also points out that she didn't need to play in any kind of commercial venues to support herself or really base any of her musical decisions on financial matters. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's a, a pretty significant thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. She could just kind of just play what she wanted to play. She could... Uh, you know, there yeah. was a little bit of, I guess, a little bit of jazz, although that would have been pretty far from her world. So maybe it's kind of a, a moot point anyway. Like there probably weren't a lot of popular opportunities for playing. But and I think maybe the point is also like she has the leisure of taking it at the pace that she wants to go at and doesn't need to be like, I'd have to like play the sing and that gig and that gig to make myself have dinner tonight or whatever. Like it's just like. Yeah, let, let I, can, alone. I can like sort of leisurely like try to learn this piece that I commissioned for as long as it takes me to learn it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, and let alone like 
if this isn't a success, then I won't be able to afford the next commission or something. Totally. She, you know, she probably could have laid it all out for all 22 commissions right at once. And uh, right. So I, I think that's important though, because it, you know, it, it means that her ability to, to generate this repertoire was, was just totally unha unhampered. Mm -hmm. Um, when she passed away, her repertoire just sort of ceased to be performed anymore. Uh, the saxophone as a classical instrument was still a relatively new concept and certainly not universally accepted. Jazz was only beginning to be heard in its very elemental stages, um, just on the on the very fringes of society, really, and and really didn't involve saxophone at first, too, right? Right. Uh, I suspect the few saxophonists who were performing a lot uh would have had had their own very personal repertoires consisting you know largely of commissions and transcriptions of their own uh, for some reason sigurd rasher always comes to mind as having like a, a very personal repertoire that he was like touring around um, right yeah so that's that's pretty much it i hope you have a better picture of of who elise hall is and what she was up I, to. I know so much. <laughs> I didn't even know she was a person before. <laughs> yeah, or a, a state park. Or a... Uh... <laughs> no, I think it's really beautiful because we get to interact with like a history of this instrument that's so, compared to other instruments, it's such a small timeline that we get to like really see things happening that you can't really see happening with violin for example or like pretty much any string instrument like you can like you can watch the history of that but we don't have like documentation of like early pieces being written and how that happened and why and like and in the same kind of context is like it's you know the just the last century and that instrument's still not even being taken seriously and that was less than 100 years ago you know or at this point i guess 100 years ago and so like we've been able to watch an evolution happen in a time of history where there's a ton of documentation about things. And we just basically got up to, uh, yeah, like you said, like just the very beginnings of jazz. And like, it sounds like everything that at least Hall did for the instrument is not really even like taken seriously or appreciated until much later, but has this like massive impact still because then there's composed like Debussy wrote a piece because she got on his ass to do it. And yeah. if, if, if it were like, we're going to wait till 1960 or 70 when like people are taking this a little bit more seriously, like he's dead, you know, and like that doesn't exist now. Right. Yeah. I think if it wasn't for, um, for Paul Cohen, like, you know, kind of doing a lot of digging and, and I guess the eighties mm -hmm. and like bringing a lot of this to light. And then, I mean, you know how it is then like people are looking for work to do for dissertations and stuff. And, and so then, or, yeah. Then people start digging through the original resources and, 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 you know, Arnold Bornkamp puts out that album and, and now all of a sudden we have a little bit of a picture and now, now we have this podcast. So, I mean, that's pretty much the final word on it. Um, circle is closed. <laughs> yeah, circle is closed. <laughs> but yeah, for, for a lot of years, it, it seems like she was just sort of someone that, you know, she did that thing at the time and, and that was an important linkage, but it wasn't, um, with the exception of maybe the WC and the Schmidt, the the stuff wasn't sort of canonical. You know, it didn't maybe the maybe the canon like really didn't even exist then. It was still in its, you know, elemental stages or something. 
Yeah. And, and maybe, and it doesn't sound like she was ever like the most um, proficient, uh, is that the right word? Um, yeah. Performer. Yeah. And so like, she's not the person who's going to be like, I need all these people to write things for me to play them. It sounded like she was more of like a, um, uh, what is it called when like, there's a person who's wealthy who just pays for an artist just to be an artist. Uh, like a patron? Uh, or like maybe more specific. It might That might be the word, but like, it's like a sponsor, but like, what was that? Well, I think when, like it's, someone, when it's a negative thing, it's like a vanity thing, but. The, yeah, this would be like a positive. It's like someone who's just wealthy and has money to throw around and they find like an artist that they're super interested in and they're like, you don't have to work. You can just make art. Maybe patron is the word, but like. Yeah, um, like, like the Medici's or Medici's or whatever were like known as great um, patrons. Yeah. And it almost seems like her role in this, even though we talked pretty at length about like whether she was a good saxophone player or not, it sounds like her role in in this in particular instrument is just being a patron of the instrument and and not necessarily like having to be like she didn't she didn't seem to want like attention for it she just was like this thing is cool and it yeah. should be like a part of of what's going on otherwise and it's just like cool thanks <laughs> yeah it's it's really cool and people are really into stuff and <laughs> to be able to like do cool stuff <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean it, like if you think about it like that's a person who like had she not done what she did it's um it's like maybe possible that like you and I wouldn't have done anything like with that instrument maybe that instrument wouldn't be around for us you know right because the, you know around that time there are a bunch of instruments that like don't make it into the modern era like the uh what's it called the ophiclida or whatever or the like sarusophone and like you know those instruments that were around like in in Belgium and France and stuff that just like kind of went by the wayside yeah, you know, maybe if Debussy had written the uh, Rhapsody for Ophiclida or whatever, like you know, yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and, and also, like it's a it's a small thing and a small speculation, but the idea of that work being uh, a transition point or something, you know, to his like La Mer, like you know, arguably maybe his his best known work now, you know, mm -hmm. who's to say that he doesn't get there without the saxophone piece right. but maybe you know cool. well um again i'll have all the full sources and uh, uh probably like a pared down version of this script available at my website andrew d meyer m-e-y-e-r.com uh, and you can leave some comments uh about what you thought of the podcast and i'd particularly love to hear uh, if there's any subjects or people you know that you want to hear in future episodes all right Thanks, Erica. Thanks, Andy. <laughs>